This morning, we're going to resume our year-long study in John's Gospel, which we've entitled A Year of Good News. And this morning, we'll be reading the first 24 verses of John chapter 7. So John 7, 24. And I should probably uh, mention that uh, the next four chapters of John's Gospel are dedicated to the final year of Jesus's ministry. And boy, was he off to a great start, a remarkable start. As you recall in chapter 6, we've got a miraculous feeding of a massive crowd. As a result, the people want to make him the king of Israel. And then he walks on water and introduces himself as the bread of life by telling the adoring crowds, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But then he says something really offensive. He says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And if this were a commercial, at this point the music would stop and hear the sound of a needle scratching the record player and then silence. And the people were like, what? What are you talking about? This teaching is way too hard. And then it says... As a result, many of his followers abandoned him. His inner circle of 12 still seemed to be hanging around, so Jesus turned to them and said, are you guys leaving too? And Peter responds on behalf of the group with that wonderful, enduring, endearing reply where he says, well, where would we go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, we may not understand everything you're teaching, but we know who you are. We know that you're the Son of God. We know that you're the Messiah. Okay, that's where we're going to pick up the story in chapter 7, but why don't we begin by asking for the Lord's help. Let's pray. So thank you, Father, for your word, and we do ask that by your Spirit... You would illuminate these words of life and help us to see clearly. And we pray, take these words of life and deposit them in us again so they can continue that work of making us new people, of restoring us, reconfiguring us into the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, do it again for your name's sake and for the sake of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's begin reading the first five verses. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. 
Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I had a very strange and unexpected reaction to this text. I felt sorry for Jesus. And I can't remember ever having that kind of response to a story in the gospel outside, of course, the passages dealing with his suffering and death. There was a certain degree of pathos in this chapter for me because things seem to be going south in a hurry for Jesus' ministry. There's, of course, the massive defection. His own brothers don't believe in him. He's being pressured to make his ministry successful. People want to kill him. Others are saying he's a charlatan and he's possessed by a devil. And there's this deepening hostility and animus toward Jesus. So on Friday, some friends and I were talking about how intense and acute the pain of rejection is for us as human beings. It's a searing pain that can paralyze our emotional systems. But we also quickly agreed that it's an emotional place where we can experience great solidarity with Jesus, that we feel comforted that he understands this kind of pain. And I think this is part of what makes our God so remarkable and that he did enter into our world and into our pain as human beings. And then he says to us when we turn to him, he says, I know how it feels. I know how you are feeling. What other God did that? I remember when my father died. And my mom joined a grief recovery group. Because at that point, what she needed was to be in the same room with other recently widowed women who understood her pain. Just being with them provided comfort, healing. There's just something about shared grief. Jesus says to us, come to me. All you who are weary, carrying heavy burdens, with all your stuff, with your worries and your fears, with your grief and pain, and let me sit with you. Let me share it, what you're going through. And let's be honest this morning. We're all going through something. 
because that's just part of what it means to be a member of the human community. We're all going through something. Have you ever felt like nothing's going right in your life? You ever been there? I think he can even relate to that too because that's what's happening to him right now. Okay, let's figure out what's going on in the story. So Jesus decided to stay in the quiet, rural Galilee region because it had become way too dangerous for him to go to Jerusalem. We know that the religious leaders are looking for a way to get rid of him permanently. And I wondered, what has Jesus done to so infuriate them that they want to kill him? Because this is the second time John has mentioned this type of reaction to him. Well, I would say for starters, in their eyes, he was a blasphemer, blasphemer and a threat to their faith. And that's a capital offense. They probably felt like they were defending God and faithfully serving as the guardians of the faith that had been delivered to them. Because think about it, every morning and every night, the first thing on their lips, the last thing on their lips is the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Hechad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus keeps doing things and saying things that elevate him to a place that belongs to God alone. But he also keeps exposing their self-righteousness and all their messed up motives, which would be an unpleasant experience for any of us. They must have felt so threatened by him. He's undermining their status, their power, their authority, and their teaching. But what they didn't realize was he was doing it out of love. Because he knew that their sins of religious pride and self-righteousness would continue to create distance between them and God. And that's a sad state of affairs. And he does the same for us. Thanks be to God. He exposes our sin. Won't let us remain comfortable in it. And not because he's a divine killjoy, but because he loves us and knows that being far off from him will not allow us to experience the abundant life found in him, through him. Okay, John lets us know that it was the time of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, so we know it's either the end of September or it's early October, and Jerusalem once again would have been throbbing with pilgrims there for this seven-day feast. Now, did you notice that his brothers don't like his approach at all? They think he needs to be far more self-promoting. They want a little more of the spectacular from him. Show everyone who you are and what you got. Go to the population centers. Get out of the backwoods. <laughs> but then again, we know they don't quite understand 
his ways because they're not our ways. I think this is the same temptation he faced in the wilderness. Make a big show. Jump off the temple. Turn the stones to bread. Show your stuff and everybody will follow you. But Jesus knew better because what he wants from us and what he wanted from them is authentic faith, not just what he can do for us. I actually think we fall into the same temptation every time we come to church as a consumer. When we're in that passive posture of receiving, right? Feed me, entertain me, make me feel better about myself, rather than coming to offer something, to give, primarily to offer worship to God, to offer our gratitude to him, and maybe to offer to our brothers and sisters a little love and encouragement and prayer. It is by giving, always it's by giving that we receive. Okay, I, I, I think our doubts get somewhat normalized in this text because we realize even Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, doubted him. That's reassuring to me. Uh, maybe his brothers were just confused like everybody else. Jesus wasn't living up to the expect expectations they had for the Messiah. In fact, I think many people today don't believe for Precisely the same reason. God didn't live up to their expectations of what he should do. He didn't make life easy and pain-free. He wouldn't allow them to remain comfortable in their sin. He didn't rescue them from all their troubles. He didn't make their success his priority. Instead, he said, it's all about loving and serving and taking up your crosses and giving your lives away for the sake of the gospel, not a ticket to paradise. And people are like, no thanks. And unfortunately, then they miss out on the paradox. And that is when we follow Jesus' example and give our own lives away, that's when we experience the abundant life for our souls. All right, let's keep moving. Verses 6 to 13. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm, going, I'm not going up to the festival because my time is not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also. Not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. And some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So eventually, he does go up to Jerusalem secretly 
surreptitiously, not with those traveling in the large pilgrim caravans. And I guess we have to conclude that maybe he was waiting for the signal from his father. Had to be the right timing, either that or he had planned to go all along, but to arrive quietly at a more opportune time. We also know it says the religious leaders have their scouts out looking for him. And people are talking about him. And at this point, you may have noticed he's receiving mixed reviews. Some saying he's a good man. Others saying, no, he's deceiving people. In the Jewish Talmud, it says that Jesus was executed because he was a beguiler. He was a deceiver who led Israel astray. And so, if that's what they believed, then their antipathy does make sense. All right, let's finish up. Verses 14 to 24. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching's not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Okay, so let's finish here. So halfway through the festival, Jesus decides to come out of the shadows and starts doing the most public thing possible, teaching. And of course, people are amazed, even though he never studied in any of the hallowed halls of learning in Jerusalem. He wasn't a disciple of a famous rabbi. He didn't go through the system. He's a backwoods preacher who knows more than the learned teachers of Jerusalem's exalted religious society. His only qualification to speak on these matters was that he was God. Those were his credentials. So on his resume, it just says, God, <laughs> creator of all things, including you. So he's God in disguise, and if they knew that, it would have all made sense to them. I think sometimes in our reading of Scripture, we have to pause and remember who he is in these scenes. Fully man, yes. 
but still fully God. And when we do, there's a certain comedic element to it. Of course he's mesmerizing. He's creating solar systems one day. The next day, he's teaching in a synagogue. No wonder he's amazing. <laughs> and they thought he was leading people away from God. Consider that for a moment. They thought God was leading people away from God. They thought God was teaching people to break God's commandments. They thought God was teaching people to be disobedient to himself. This is how confused they were. They're still hung up on the fact that he healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years and he did it on the Sabbath. <laughs> and as a result, you know what? They totally missed the miracle. And what should have been this riotous celebration with singing and dancing and celebration and tears. Ultimately, they are blind to who he is, the man of truth, which should have been clear to them because all he does is bring glory to God. <laughs> And they were bound up by the instruction of Torah that was supposed to bring them life. And they couldn't take the blinders off their own eyes and they couldn't unlock their own chains. And neither can we. So my final thought here. So Jesus goes to the cross to remove the sin that separated us from God, and then 50 days later, sends his spirit to open our eyes to see and to lead us into ever-increasing freedom from the bondage of our sinful condition, to be our teacher, to be our guide, to empower us to live a life that actually reflects him. In other words, what he wants us to become is men and women of truth where our whole life is focused on bringing glory to God. That that's the purpose of our whole life. That we move away from the glorification of our own selves and we glorify God. That's what John the Baptist was doing. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's calling us to do. And when we walk that path, it says the Spirit of the Lord is with us. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. So thank you, Father, for this day when we celebrate our freedom and the way you came to lead us down the path that leads to freedom and leads to life. Empower us again today like you did your early disciples by your spirit to live a life that glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.